0: My name is George. Hi. I'm glad to be able to bring you God's Word from Zephaniah this morning. Um, let's go ahead and read, and then we will pray and get started. Uh, Zephaniah uh, one one starts with, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, King of Judah, I will utterly sweep everything, sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent, hush before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills, wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search, Jeru- I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near, and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness." a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed." for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Will you pray with me? Father, we, we come to you and we, we bow before you. Um, God, you know our hearts. Um, you know the sin that we... We fortify in our own hearts the sin that we we coddle. God, would you root it out of us? God, would you make us burn with a holy passion um, to help people see their sin and turn from it? But God, first, would you make our sin visible to us, uh, that it might um, make us sick, and seek you. God, use your word in Zephaniah um, to help us grow closer to you um, in our private devotions, but also as a community of people called out as your holy ones. God, use your word. Speak this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I spent a season um, working of a private project, a development project, working on fractals. Um, so for the math people here, they, they know fractals. If you don't know fractals, fractals are this idea of repeating structures that have, it's not quite repeating, it's not repeatable, but there's repetition, there's, there's these things that kind of reoccur and you keep on seeing throughout the image. Um, there are patterns that as you go from a high level down into the low level, you don't see the same thing, but you start seeing repeated. Things. You start seeing structure that um, always seems to be deep and rich. It's not just the same old. It doesn't ever turn off and become just bland. There's always structure as you go further and further down and as you go further and further up. Um, You might think of it like a zoom lens on a camera. If you took a picture, yeah, take a picture up here, whatever, you might see. Just the screen around the drums, but if you zoom in, you might see, I don't know, maybe the knob on the end of the drum, something like that. You have that zoom lens. Well, that is exactly what we're going to be dealing with as we look at Zephaniah this morning. Zephaniah starts with this grand scope. All of creation will be judged. It will be undone. Judah, Jerusalem, you will be judged as my people, and then even deeper, individual areas within Jerusalem who will experience God's displeasure, his wrath against sin, and then out again, all inhabitants of the earth, woe to you. Now, we start looking right at verse 1-1, we see the introduction introduces us to Zephaniah. Um, Not much is known about Zephaniah, Um, he doesn't really come up anywhere else in scripture, so his book is all we know of him. Um, but one interesting feature here is that um, he has four generations listed, and that makes him stand out. That's not a normal thing for any of the other prophets. Um, Now, some people want to read that as then that Hezekiah, um, that name, that final name stands out as the name of the last king who was a reformer, and so some some people look at this and go, Zephaniah was maybe the, the great-grandson of Hezekiah, this reformer, and so he's, you know, kind of lifting up his laurels. He's saying, you know, look at me, you should listen to me, um, but we don't know that enough. What we do know is that Hezekiah, or the, uh, Zephaniah, as he calls out two different king, two different names, Hezekiah and Josiah, is trying to indicate, trying to tell us, trying to make us think in terms of what God has been doing to try to reform the people, to try to reform their worship of God, and how it has repeatedly failed. It doesn't matter if he is actually Hezekiah's great-grandson. What matters is that Hezekiah should remind them that they tried reform, but the people are still deep in their sin. So this is really going to be a comment as Zephaniah starts talking about what can be accomplished by Josiah's reforms. Josiah is trying to do amazing things to get Israel back on track, to avoid judgment. And Zephaniah says, do it, continue, it will not work. Judgment is coming, it's unavoidable, but that doesn't mean we don't do something. But judgment is coming. So we turn then and we start looking at it. He does start with this idea of decreation. And we see in verses like 2 through 4, we see this reversal of creation. We see man and beast punished. We see birds of the sky and the fish all in reverse, as if God is saying, as I punish man, as I punish sin, it will be as if all of creation is undone. It's rolled back and done in reverse. Eden was supposed to be this temple garden. Jerusalem is also this place that's supposed to be the temple. It's supposed to represent God's presence. And this is supposed to put us in this grand narrative that God wanted to do something with us. He wanted to do something with man. They were supposed to represent all of creation back to him in worship. As they failed in Eden, they've now failed in Israel, and Judah, and God is going to punish them. He's going to punish. There's no avoiding it. And we should also see parts of the flood narrative as we look in Zephaniah 1, 2. It says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Just as God has already punished because of sin, he says, I'm going to do it again. I expect something when I make a covenant, and I am faithful to that covenant, whether that's for good or for ill. What Zephaniah presents is just a graphic display of the totality of the destruction. He does start high level, but very quickly it becomes that high level is supposed to show us that it's, it's Judah, it's Jerusalem. Their sin is going to affect and have this great consequence. It's not just they're going to be punished and that's the end of it. The punishment of Judah and Jerusalem means punishment on all the world, on all the people, on all the land. He says, I will cut off mankind. How drastic do we have to read then Judah and Jerusalem's sin? And by that, same thing, our own sin. Because it's not the guilt of fish, birds, and beasts that is bringing this judgment on the earth. They're not held accountable for anything. They're simply the consequence of God's judgment on Jerusalem, on man's sin. God is going to punish their sin, and it's going to have global consequences. And the rest of Zephaniah 1 is going to present us with an assortment of people, different groups within Jerusalem who are going to receive God's specific condemnation. He's going to receive specific parts of that wrath. So we're going to jump right in. It's going to start with verses 4 through 6, and that's going to be with the the priests, the religious system inside of Jerusalem and Judah. He says, I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. So he starts right there with um, the remnant of Baal. So you, you, if you kind of go look at this history of Israel, they've continually fought against this idea that, uh, that surrounded them of the deity Baal. He's a fertility god Um, He goes by the title, the master. So the Baal is really the Lord or the king or the master. So there's this idea of him as ruler. And so Judah has gotten into this habit where they can be saying, bless Yahweh. Yahweh will protect us. But they're actually worshiping Baal. They're actually worshiping something that is not God. And they're thinking, we're perfectly fine. We're saying the right words. And God is saying, your heart is far from me and you will receive judgment because of it already told you. Uh, Milcom there, um, depending on your translation, you may have milcom, you may have something else. Uh, I think this word is actually the Hebrew word for like my king, if you want to think of it that way. This is really um, God saying, those who bow bow down and swear to the Lord, basically again, the, the master, the king, but at the same time swear by my king, my ball, They're really pointing to this, again, this dichotomy where they can think that they're worshiping the right thing, but their hearts are directed elsewhere. And he targets directly the idolatrous priests. Um, they, They are supposed to be speaking the word of the Lord. They're supposed to be pointing the people to the law, to know about sin, to know how to approach God properly, but instead... They're approving of the kind of practices that the people are loving. They're supposed to be confronting the people, saying, no, what you're doing is wrong. Stop worshiping in all these high places. Come to Jerusalem. Offer your sacrifices there. Be dedicated to the one you've made a covenant with, God himself. So as Hezekiah does his um, acts of trying to bring the people back, it works for a time, and then the people revert. And as Josiah begins to do his acts of trying to recover, restore right worship, the people for a time are okay with that, and then they revert. And the priests are happily willing to go along with it and let the people drive the nation. He calls out in uh, verse, where is it? I'm missing it. Yeah, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. It's not that they're not communicating with God. They're trying to communicate with something. But they're not actually going to God to do it. They're going to something else. Um, They're going to someone else. And from that, we really should drive out the fact that our wrong views of God really do affect our worship. Um, Theology ultimately matters. It's not just head space. It's not just words on page. It's not just words spoken. It matters. So, we can't just quote, God is love. I mean, the world is ready to accept that. God is love. That's great. Or at least redefining love and then flipping it around. Love is God. But it falls apart when we start talking about truly loving our enemies. Loving those who would do us harm. The world's idea of what God is love means just has no concept for that. Or of growing in holiness and rejecting sin when facing temptation. What does a God that is loving say to the sinner? More often the world says a God who is love... There is no such thing as sin. God loves you too much to punish you. So our theology matters. We can't just say, only God can judge me. Um, Jesus taught us not to judge. The point was always to judge rightly, to deal with our sin first before we deal with other people's sin. If we don't judge, we end up with false teaching, with gossip. Now, we're called to a holy passion to actually deal with sin, And so theology matters. What we believe about God matters. Islam is happy to present a Jesus who is a prophet, who is a man. They're happy to present God who is completely transcendent, but a God who is near to us, who interacts with us, who accepts our prayers and actually interacts with us? Too far. Judaism presents Jesus as a rabbi or a teacher, but a, a savior? No. Buddhism, Jesus is a manifestation of God, but not the unique God-man. In every one of these instances, we see that they present a different picture from Christianity, where Jesus is Lord, he is risen, he is God, divine son, flesh flesh buried, resurrected. He's not just this thing out there that is so transcendent that we can't grasp it. He's come down to us. And so our theology matters. We can't go as simple as saying, it's all God. We all desire the same thing. We don't. We have very, very different things that we're seeking after. And so as we talk about paths to God, somebody talks universalism. Zephaniah is fine with a universalism of judgment. Everybody will be judged, but of salvation, there is no universal salvation. The world is fine with an inclusivism. Zephaniah says, no, your private path to God will earn you only judgment. You can't hope in, well, I was sincere in my following of this other God. It will bring only judgment. So C.S. Lewis was wrong. It's not just sincere worship, it's right worship, because theology matters. And ultimately, he does picture here the path to God is exclusive. It is only through refuge in God. It's only through Jesus Christ. It's only His covenant people who are going to see salvation. And they're not going to get out of it without judgment Judgment is coming. It's unavoidable. Again, in every case, theology about God matters greatly. It has practical value. It makes us wise. It helps us discern what is going on around us, and it helps us judge our own hearts. So turning to there, from there, he moves on to the king's household um, and the officials. So in verses 7 through 8... Um, He says, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. It's interesting that the king is not mentioned. We don't know why. Um, He could have been a couple reasons. It could have been because the king is a very young child at this point. Josiah took the rule at a very young age. Um, And so maybe it was thought by Zephaniah, as God is speaking through him, that it was inappropriate to judge this king whose life had barely begun. Um, It could have been that there was nothing really to challenge the king on. The king has been obedient. The king has been a reformer. Whatever it is, he jumps over the king and deals with his household um says the king's sons, that probably is intended to not just be his children, but really the household. It's the establishment. It's the kingship um, at large. And God says, I'm going to judge it. I have consecrated them as a sacrifice. I have done everything necessary, and I will bring it to fruition. We're going to talk about that a little bit more, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on that right now because I'm going to come back to it. Um, we'll maybe jump into the those in foreign attire, and so there's this idea of some of the people are dressing up, whether that means that they're dressing up like the priests from uh, other religions. Of course, ever since Solomon's day, um, Jerusalem has been filled with temples and sites dedicated to other gods, and so they've had priests for those other religions inside of Jerusalem. God's, you know place, Zion, where he's supposed to be worshiped, you have these people who are in foreign attire. Um, But also you have this idea of people who are comfortable with Assyrian domination, people who are comfortable with these other nations having rule. And so they're going to dress in that style. They're going to dress to show their allegiance when God and the law has said exactly how they're supposed to dress, to call themselves out as a unique people. And so this is really a question, again, of allegiance. Just as the priests are speaking God's name, but directing their worship to somebody else, the rulers, those in charge, are dressing in such a way that they show where their real allegiance lies. And it is not with God. The next group he calls out is the rich and the complacent. He spends about verses 9 through 13 working with them. He says... On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. I hope we see just a little bit of Jesus in the temple throwing tables over because it's becoming a den of robbers and thieves. These are the people who are supposed to be worshiping God in the right place instead are making it a place of greed, of theft, of Betrayal of God's principles in the temple. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill, Their goods shall be plundered, their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink from them. So the trade and comfort of the people is going to be put to flight by an approaching army. He pictures the fish gate. Let me see if I can do this. So fish gate, Um, the second quarter over here, maybe towards the west. And so he pictures the invading army coming in from the north and devastating Jerusalem in a southward direction as he comes through. All the people, the merchants who thought that they were secure inside the city, no more. Nothing they've done is going to keep them. The people who are in this nice, uh, maybe up-and-coming district of the residential area of Jerusalem, not protected, not safe, because God has come in judgment. Um, the mortar is, is most likely a merchant area in the middle of the city. Um, it's kind of in a depression, although it's, if you look at the modern city, it's, it's actually upraised because of repeated things built on top of it. It's a little bit more raised up, but basically, if you can imagine a mortal, mortar and pestle. This is the mortar. It's a, it's a depression where most of the trade is happening, and what Zephaniah is really picturing here is you have this central area that will be judged. But the whole city becomes this mortar and pestle, and God is going to pound it. He's going to pound it in judgment because the people have trusted in their wealth, they've trusted in their security, their houses, their vineyards, and not in the God who gave them to them in the first place. And so it says that God is going to search them out with lamps Um, Pictures of, of Zephaniah in commentaries and that sort of thing often, or older books would have them like with a candle, and that was this idea of God searching out with lamps to find everyone. Nobody could escape it. You couldn't hide in a hole underneath the city. God would search you out. He's not going to let anyone get away. They've been complacent. They think God will do neither good or bad. This isn't atheism. It's not that they don't believe in God. It's just they don't believe he is relevant. They're going to live their lives how they're going to do it, regardless of what God says. It's very similar to what we were reading in um, Word and Prayer this morning in Zephaniah, or in, uh, in Jeremiah. They just don't really pay attention to what God says. They've, they've closed their ears to it. They don't think God is going to act. And so what God says is, I am going to act, and there is nothing you can do about it, and you think I will do neither good or ill, I will do ill. You will experience it. I will take, um, as we kind of joked, not not really joked, but talked on Slack, God will, as much as he delighted in blessing them because of his covenant with them, he will now take delight in punishing them because they deserve it because they have sinned, and they stand accountable for that sin. And so we're going to talk about the covenant curses, but I'd suggest maybe taking a day this week and reading Deuteronomy about 28 through 30. Read that whole section, and you'll get a picture of exactly how God was going to bless Israel and how he told them he would judge them for their sin. Lays it out for them. But moving on, the rest of the chapter, verses about 14 through 18, expresses basically that no one left will escape. The common people, but the merchants still, everyone. The coming army is a ruin for the people at large. No one can escape. None can hope to avoid the distress of the city. He talks about it in terms that are graphic. He talks about... Dust and dung, and by that dust and dung, he's really referring to blood and entrails. The graphic, this is what battle will look like in the city. People will bleed on the ground, and it will be in the dust. It will be sucked up by it. People will be cut open, entrails out, dung, filth in the city. It's a picture of complete, utter devastation. You can't buy yourselves off of it. Because God is their enemy. God, who is faithful to his covenant, will be faithful whether for good or for ill.
1: And so summarizing
0: the judgment, it's coming. It is near. It's unavoidable. It is universal in scope. It is an entire world flipped upside down for Judah. They thought they were unassailable. They thought God will never punish Jerusalem, God. that's the place where he has set his name to be. And he says, no, not only will I judge you, but it is because my name is there that your sin is so heinous and must be judged, so targeted. And the reality is Jerusalem in 60 years will experience exactly this devastation. Zephaniah is not a false prophet. He's a prophet who speaks the true word of the Lord. Jerusalem and Judah go into exile, destroyed. And, and it's not one where if we just repent, if we just do the right thing, the Lord will turn around in a moment and rescue. It is devastation. It is not going to be recovered easily, our position with God. so, that really covers the bulk and maybe the historical setting, but we want to look at a, uh, some things related to sort of maybe what we would call covenant terms. And so, we're going to actually look at Deuteronomy um, just in brief, um, but really it's a question of how was Judah to respond to the message? What were they supposed to do with this message of judgment? In chapter 2, Brian is going to talk about the, the possibility of mercy, a very thin perhaps. Chapter 2 is explicit about repentance, and it's implied in chapter 1, but we're jumping the gun. And so let's read, I'm going to read Zephaniah 12b through 13 again. It says, I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste, though they build houses they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. And if we read in Deuteronomy 28, verses 25 through 30, we find the following. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. You shall be a whore to all the kingdoms of the earth, and your dead body shall be food for all birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind and you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness and you shall not prosper in your ways and you shall only be only oppressed and robbed continually and there shall be no one to help you You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. In later in the same chapter, he says, If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sickness grievous and lasting. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And they say, not active for good or ill, because I will show you exactly how I will act in response to your sin. And here is where we often want to jump quickly to solutions. Jerusalem, Judah, if you will just repent. If you will just deal with your sin and get right with God, it will be okay. And God says, no, it will not be okay. It will not. And so we need to settle here for a moment before we jump to repentance in chapter 2, before we jump to the hope of a future, a perhaps, and just realize we've sinned. Jerusalem needs to know you have sinned. I am right in judging you. I'm not wrong. I'm not being overzealous about my people. You deserve every bit of it. You knew it going in. You have been unfaithful to me, and your sin must be punished. No God who can just Swipe away sin and go, "I'm going to move forward without it. I, it's all about me, I'm not worried about. No, God is going to punish sin. It is very real. And we have to deal with it. We can't just skip over it. And so just as he's saying this to Jerusalem, we need to deal with that. We need to deal with the sin in our midst. So the sin in our own personal lives, it has to be addressed. You can't move on and go, I'm going to have a right relationship with God, but I'm just going to ignore the sin that I've been practicing and that my heart truly loves. It has to be dealt with. Beyond as an individual, we have to deal with the sin in our community. It's not enough to just get our house in order when everyone around us is sin sick, when the community at large is its whole heart, Turned away from God. And that's ultimate, that's the takeaway from Zephaniah, because God's judgment is coming, it's near. Temptation should drive you to the Word. Sin in your life should drive you to your knees. Sin in your community is something to be dealt with and not ignored, not glossed over because that'll be a difficult conversation. Sin has to be addressed, it's serious. We have a whole chapter here. There's not a, a word of hope. There's no, you can be a remnant in this chapter. It is simply, you will be judged for your sin. Take it seriously. Understand how you stand before me, the God of the universe. So that's maybe covenant term one. Covenant ter- term two is going to be this idea of a sacrificial feast. Feast. And so really to get the the idea of what's going on in verses 7 and 8, we really need to turn to an example of a covenant um, inauguration, but as well it refers to a covenant breaking. Um, But we find this in Genesis 15, 9 through 11. This is where Abraham makes a covenant um, with Yahweh. He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon, and he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. If we go later on in this chapter, we're going to find basically the idea of God walking between the halves of the animals. And the idea here is these animals are separated, and the parties of the treaty of the covenant walk between them to say, if I break the covenant, do thus to me. Make me like these animals, killed, separated. Do that to me. And so God commits himself to a covenant saying, I'm going to be like that if this covenant is broken. We saw it even in Deuteronomy where he says he won't scatter the birds. There's this idea that it will be utterly consumed when the covenant is broken. And so we're called to see something in the sacrificial feast that is different. Um, And so what we want to talk about, it's too bad we're not actually doing the Lord's Supper today because there's this element here that I want to draw out. Um, it's the king's house is pictured as the sacrifice. Um, in, in Zephaniah, it's because they're sinful, and he set them up as a sacrifice to deal with his wrath. But we come to the picture of Jesus set up as a sacrifice, willingly, voluntarily being our sacrifice to deal with our sin, to be that covenant curse And so we see Jesus as the sacrifice. We see Jesus as he willingly gives his body and blood as punishment for sin. The message is supposed to recast as he talks, as Zephaniah talks, the Passover from Egypt to, to, to sin and death. So we see In uh, verses 14 through 15, he says, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast, the sound of the day of the Lord bitter. He talks about devastation and darkness and gloom and the day of clouds and thick darkness. Two different images would appear, one being um, the reminder of the plagues on Egypt and the darkness over the land, but then also Moses, Mount Sinai, deep clouds over the mountain and the people saying, would you give us Someone who stands in the gap. Somebody to be a mediator because we cannot stand the Lord's voice. And God says they're right. They need a mediator. And a mediator is Jesus. And we can see this in the darkness at the cross. Jesus is on the cross as he's giving up his spirit. We see the darkness over the land. He is the sacrifice. He is the representative for the people. He is universal sin and judgment meted out on that specific target of God's wrath. One sinless man. And he invites his people to remember that sacrifice. And so when we take the Lord's Supper, we're remembering Jesus' work of making new covenant, of addressing the old covenant which had failed with his people It's not that we are making a sacrifice in the Lord's Supper. It's that Christ has sacrificed himself to ensure that there can be a remnant. We can only get to the remnant of chapter 2 and chapter 3 by going through Jesus punished for our sin. So that ends covenant terms. So we'll quickly try to go through this. I want to talk about then what, um, as we've talked about Lord's Supper, that naturally draws us to think about what, did the early church do with Zephaniah 1? What did they read in Zephaniah 1? How how does the New Testament tell us to respond to the day of the Lord? And we see a couple of things. Um, We're first called to holy living. We're second called to understand judgment and reward. And lastly, we're called to understand a remnant. So first, living in light, of the fate of the world, um, if we turn, you don't have to turn there, but Second Peter 3, 9 through 10 says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed What do we see here drawn out by Peter as he reads Zephaniah? We see the desire for repentance. It's real once sin is addressed. So God's patient because he wants to seek repentance from his people. I mean, it comes like a thief. The same urgency that Zephaniah wants his people to understand. This is coming soon. Peter wants his people, the church, to know as well. It will come when they're not prepared. Will come when the world is not looking for it it will come quickly 1st Thessalonians 5:2 says the same it will come like a thief so be prepared you have to live life prepared because you don't know when the thief is coming and he also says that nothing can be hidden every sin every work of faith will be exposed and then he goes further than that though and, and ask the question, how are we to live? Um, when we are told that we have this level of judgment for our sin upon us, there's the question of how we're going to respond. Are we going to be scared and just live in a state of fear, not knowing what to do, sort of just locked up and frozen? Uh, the world is, is often just nihilistic. This world has no meaning, therefore I'm going to enjoy it. And worse than that, maybe life is not worth living. I'm just going to make myself happy. Or maybe just apathetic. Nothing can bring me joy. Zephaniah offers none of those, and Peter doesn't either. Peter says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire, That's verse 18 of Zephaniah 1. And dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Further, in the same chapter, he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. And so first, you're to live lives of holiness. Not apathy, not nihilism, not fear, holiness, lives of holiness. You're to wait for and hasten the day when Christ will come. What does it mean to hasten except for to be constantly ready to proclaim the gospel, to prepare people for that coming judgment, and then to grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus. So grace and awareness of your need. If your sin is not driving you to prayer daily, if not more, it should be. Grace, awareness of the needs of the sin sick around you. If you've experienced grace, you will want others to experience that grace. Are you content to experience grace and never offer it to others? You don't have to save them. You can't save them, but God can if we'll tell them. And on the other side of the great day, the Lord, uh, the other side of the great day of the Lord is eternity. We have no guarantees given in Zephaniah that if you just do this, it will mean eternity. But Peter lets us in on the fact that as we are faithful to Jesus, he ensures us he will hold us. We will make it. So the second thing was judgment and reward and eternal and a here and now understanding. And so uh, we talked about, you know, theology mattering, but what we do matters. It doesn't save us, but it absolutely matters. It affects others. Sin moves, and it spreads, and it contaminates, and it ruins. We can think it's just us. Nobody else sees it. Even that sin is affecting who we are and how we react with other people, how we deal with them in a body like this, it could absolutely kill community. So sin needs to be dealt with. So judgment and reward is important. Uh, we, we've, we come to Matthew 3 or Luke 3, both dealing with John the Baptist. And we have this statement from him. He says, who told you to flee the wrath to come? He says, instead, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So our theology matters, but what we do with that theology matters too. We can't just rest on, well, I prayed a prayer. I accepted Christ when I was a child, but my life is so far away from God, and I'm living it. My, maybe when I'm older, I'll deal with No, it matters. What we do matters. Matthew 7, uh, 22 says something very very similar. He's talking to the people, and, and he says, you know, um, what you did to the least of these you've done to me. What you didn't do to the least of these, you didn't do for me. And he says, when did we? He says, depart, I I never knew you, or welcome. What we do matters. 1 Corinthians 3.13, Paul is talking about um, being glad that the gospel is proclaimed, even by those who do it, out of envy and out of wrong motives. But he says, each man's work will be disclosed what he built with. So he can rest in Christ knowing that he has been faithful. He doesn't have to judge the others. He doesn't have to uh, be constantly in this sense of mad about it, but he can simply rest in the work that Christ has allowed him to do. And then the last thing that we can get from Zephaniah as as it's seen in the New Testament is this idea of being a remnant and being held fast to the end. Uh, John, specifically, uh, chapter 6, talks repeatedly about the day of, Lord, of the Lord marked by Jesus knowing and keeping his own. The re- repeated refrain is, he will raise it, or he will raise him up on the last day. Hebrews 10, 23-25 puts it this way, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day of the Lord directs us to be known by God as a people, not just as individuals, not just to boasting in our own value or the fact that we've been saved and that God loves us, but that we are known and loved as a people as his people. So, wrapping up, Zephaniah, we see sin. We see from the least to the greatest judgment. And because God's judgment is coming, because it's near, we we really should repent. We should call others to repent. There's no hope of averting the disaster. We don't promise people that they can avoid the consequences of their sin. They may not. But God is strong enough. Jesus will carry them through those consequences of their sin. He's worth being related to. So there's no hope of avoiding the consequences, but there is hope of mercy. To be a remnant, to be his remnant. and Because God's judgment is coming, we should repent in the knowledge of Jesus' death and resurrection. We don't have to leave it at Zephaniah, judgment coming, no hope. Jesus has paid the penalty for sin and we can find mercy through Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, we we ask for you to speak, to continue to work in our hearts. God, to conform us to the image of Christ. Father, we thank you that the gates of heaven lie open for us to pray for us to seek you in the midst of our temptation um, in the midst of our sin you invite us to come and find mercy God may we do that may we be serious about dealing with our sin about loving the body of Christ well God would you make us more and more your own and get yourself glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.